Warning, the recording is on. The information provided during the episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. All information represents the personal opinions of me and my guest. Hej och välkomna till Dataministeriet med mig Filip Jonsen och Anders Bäckström som inte heller idag kunde närvara. And I will now turn to English because today as last time we have a distinguished guest from the US, Heidi Saas, a US privacy attorney. A warm welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm so glad that we finally could meet, not in person, unfortunately, but at least on video. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's exciting to be a part of the larger privacy communication you know, network because everybody listens to podcasts all over the place and yours is pretty popular. So yeah, yeah instead of doing 12 speaking events, maybe I can hit 12 different spots with one. Absolutely. I think we have like listeners all, all around the world for the English episodes. Of course, when we record in Swedish, the audience is slightly smaller. Yeah, we only speak English. Yeah, I just started working with a uh, group of lawyers out of Canada and they, you know, every now and then run off in French. Yeah. And yeah, you know, and they're not thinking about it because they think, you know, everybody speaks multiple languages. But that's that's just not an American thing. We're too lazy for that. Yeah, I actually speak French. And some I'm sure German. you do. And yeah, sure, you're German. American. You speak lots of languages. You're not American. Yeah. I can tell. <laughs> no. um, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, how did you come into this privacy industry and what have you been up to? Uh, well, I started as a consumer rights attorney. Um, so, well, I, you know, let's back up a little bit. Um, and I'm first in family to go to college. So when I went, I wanted to find out how, to, how does stuff work, you know, the intersection of money and the law. Um, so I ended up doing uh, going to college at GW in Washington, and I worked at a lobbying law firm at the same time, had clients on Capitol Hill, and we were very much a part of the public policy at the time. So I quickly learned how all that stuff works. And then I went to law school. Um, after that, I started working in consumer rights, and it was the financial crisis. Uh, and it was a hard time for everybody. So it was um, pretty much drinking from a fire hose every day. So eventually I was moved um, down to here uh, in the Maryland area, and I was asked to run um, the practice for the attorneys in a national consumer rights law firm. So I scaled it to 200 lawyers, trained them, built the systems to uh, do case file management, working with third party vendors to set all of the um, all, all of the uh, flags in place so that you could monitor the attorney's work. And we had over 40,000 clients and we were helping them through their issues with debt. Uh, unsecured debt. So at the time, um, you know, we didn't really have a basis of science used in the algorithms at the bank for the ability to repay when they issued a loan. Um, and the thing about science is it's real, whether you believe in it or not. And so we had a financial meltdown. Um, so part of the cure for that was, you know, working on the ground level with consumers, fighting case by case, but also lobbying so that we could rein in um, bad uses of technology, essentially. Um, so Dodd-Frank was passed, the CARD Act was passed, um, and then we got a little bit more um, certainty and clarity in the market. Things started to improve. 
So when I got ready to go back into the field after having children, um, I realized that I had to um, learn as much as I could about data privacy and technology because that's where the violations are happening now. So that's what led me into privacy. I did the analytics courses just to find out, well, what is data as a product? Where does it come from? How do people use it? What are they doing with it? Where does it go? Um, and, and those sorts of things. Then I got involved with the IEPP and now it's almost five years later and you know things are radically different. When I first started in privacy, nobody was talking about consumer rights or ethical AI or privacy you know, a, as a consumer right. Um, they were just talking about what are the regulatory obligations because the GDPR is here and we got to do something. So that was, that was kind of what everybody was really excited about at the time. Um, and I'm glad to see that things have changed now, right? It, at least here in the U.S., because everybody in the world is waiting for the U.S. to do something to regulate big tech. And it's got to be here because that's where they are. So it's, it's getting better now. I'm more excited to be working in privacy now than any of the previous years. I don't know how you feel about it. No, I, I, I completely agree. Um, I'm curious about this consumer perspective because do you think that that's what's going to drive a federal act or law in the U.S. finally? Uh, you know what? Let's talk about Congress in a minute because I, I got a lot to say about that. But I wanna, first, I want to tell you a little story. In 1971, the privacy was enshrined in our rights by Congress here in the U.S. in the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So the Fair Credit Reporting Act says, at, you know, at the time, that was only this one spot people had as a location of information about you to get a job or a loan, something like that. They would check your credit report. So you had rights in the accuracy of that credit report. You had the rights to know what do you have, what uh, they had the right to correct the data if it was wrong the right to opt out of mass marketing, and the right to sue them if they don't. There's private right of action in there. So that worked out fine until people realized the power of big data around 2003. They said, you know what? This regulation is killing my business. And so they lobbied for an exception. It's called FACTA. It was passed in 2003, and it amended the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Basically said, if you're one of the big three credit reporting agencies, you still have to follow these rules. And everybody else can scrape data and sell it with reckless abandon. And so they did. 20 years ago, they started. Here's where we are now that created the data broker industry. So um, I have been calling for the last couple of years for it to be repealed. We, you know, we allowed for innovation and now we see the harms and we need to take appropriate steps to uh, mitigate it or regulate it. So that. That is the biggest thing that I see moving now. Currently, government agencies are the ones to look at with rulemaking because Congress delegated some of their authority, wisely so, a long time ago too. But they delegated the rulemaking authority to the agencies. So the FTC, the EEOC, uh, and the CFPB, Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. You need to watch that one. That's the one that we lobbied to have established when we had Dodd-Frank passed for the banking regulations. That agency is still a baby agency, but they're embarking upon rulemaking right now. So what it looks like they're doing is they are going to be addressing some of these issues where businesses say they don't have to comply with the FCRA, but in fact, they do. The industries that are covered are housing, education, lending, employment, and insurance. And in those areas, 
we may soon have those rights back. The right to know what you have, the right to correct it, and the private right of action if they don't, because it's such highly sensitive data used against us in these life critical purposes. So that's where I see the greatest chance of advancement right there. Congress is going to do nothing because Congress needs this data to keep their jobs. So we can talk more about that if you want to, and I'll break it down for you. But I, I'm excited about the rulemaking activity from the consumer perspective. Um, and those are the agencies you need to watch with the changes they're going to make. Yeah, so, so it's slightly broader than if you think of like credit, you think of like lending money, but it's it's broader concept. Well, look what's happened to crypto. Crypto said, we're not regulated. We're not securities. Well, oh, yes, you are. And if you don't get in line with the securities regulations, you're now going to be criminals. So, you know, that's that's another one of those industries where everybody said, please regulate me because they wanted to know what the rules were. Um, and now that they have regulations, they want to fight them. <laughs> but, but, but from an EU perspective, we all, everything we see is FTC, actually, like enforcement by the FTC against Facebook or Meta or against any other like tech giant. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that FTC might not be the most important when it comes to actual future oh, no, legislation. Oh no, they're very important. And they also em are embarking upon rulemaking. They have a more onerous rulemaking process called Magnuson Moss that they have to follow. Um, and they accepted testimony from the public. I gave testimony back in September. Um, for this at the live hearing, as well as accepting written comments from the public. And they closed that, I believe, in October or November of last year. So they are working over there trying to set up what new rules should be at the same time that they're doing the investigations and coming out with these settlements with these big businesses that you keep seeing. So they're still doing the rulemaking over there. They're just trying to find out where can we place rules that are going to be enforceable, but also achieve our goal. And we can defend in court because as soon as they announce rules, they're going to get sued on it. Yes. So the current enforcement by these agencies, what is it based on? You know what? It's based on technologists, right? We finally have people that understand technology working in the government agencies. They are data scientists and ML engineers and all of the data people that you need because they know how this stuff works. The lawyers don't know how this stuff works. So you needed all of these people to come in and say, here's how this stuff works. The, the crucial change in the last couple of years has been the ability to look inside the system and attach the culpability of the law to the code that's causing the harm. Because we've seen the harm, but we had to have causation. So now we have where the law meets the code and here is what you can and cannot do. And so those are the cases coming out. Um, if, you know, to change over to a different government agency, we can look at California. California has a data privacy agency with rulemaking authority. So the rules that they just made are about to take effect in two weeks. Google has already put out information saying you cannot use GA4 properties the same way because the legislation was passed to prohibit cross-device behavioral tracking and targeting ads. And Google says that's exactly what we do. And so they're going to have to geofence and disable sharing between multiple Google products. Um, and those changes are taking effect in a couple of weeks. And that's from a rulemaking event, not a law from Congress. Uh, so I think we all know about the California and the updated uh, like uh, law or act. Mm -hmm. um, but what I meant before when I asked, like, where did it come from consumer side? That is exactly what I was thinking about, because that's 
men it's even called consumer protection, contrary to like protection against the state. Yeah, you know, I, I, at the beginning, when I first started looking at privacy, it was more privacy was kind of, you know, people still saw it as a part of, you know, cybersecurity. You know, we've got privacy rules and here's how you need to treat the data. Cybersecurity is how you're going to affect those changes within the data pipeline. Um, and then privacy started to grow. GDPR, well, now the, the rights belong to an individual and you started to see the data subject as a human. Well, now I think that's transferred over to our side where they're not data subjects, they're consumers. And consumers do have rights because they're aware of what's happening with their data now and they are not happy. So do you think that we will say the same, uh, for example, when it comes to employees? Yeah, yeah, it's the awareness. I mean, we're not just the, at a point of awareness where they know something's happening. They know how it's happening. You know, I recently was out um, talking to members of the public just because I talked to random people to find out where consumers are and what their ideas are of privacy. I asked three questions. So what does privacy mean to you? What do you think of data brokers? And do you know how to change the privacy settings on your phone? And I've been doing this for a couple of years now. The answers this year, people are definitely aware of what happens in the data pipeline and they can pinpoint which company collected the data and who they shared it with, kind of like pinpointing the town gossip. So people are definitely more aware now than previously and they see how much money's being made and they're not comfortable with that either. So uh, the consumers are driving this change with businesses. It is an issue of brand trust for businesses and reputation if they have a privacy problem now, whereas before it was seen as a larger security issue. So, so speaking of trust, how do you think that a company organization can uh, build in trust to their ecosystem or? It starts with the leadership. You know, what does your company do and uh, what's your goal, you know, for your company? How does that align with your obligations for regulatory compliance? And can you use some of that for your brand reputation? You know, like if, if whatever business line you're in, you want to build trust with consumers, say you're in fashion, those sorts of things. Well, you want to gather a lot of information about the consumer so that you can try to help them find whatever it is they're looking for within your brand. But you also want to have them feel comfortable, like in a dressing room. If you go to a store and you try on some clothes, there may be a camera somewhere. You're aware of that. But do you have seven cameras looking at you while you're changing clothes? No, that's that's an uncomfortable feeling. So online that translates to here's the privacy policy. Here are all of the changes that we have. Um, and then, you know, you can tell people, here's how we treat your data and how we respect what you share with us. Um, and then, you know, if something does go wrong, they have to admit it early. They have to know what their problems were and they have to have had some systems in place. Like you're not going to survive that if you did nothing and you're surprised you got problems. So what do you think about, because if you have a camera, you need to have this sign at the store, at least here in the EU. Um, I, saw, I think I saw that uh, the, in the new Consumer Act, uh, Privacy Act in, in California, or maybe it was only a suggestion. And we had a suggestion earlier on in the, before GDPR, during the ne negotiations, having like different forms of icons on the web. That, you know, I got a problem with notice and consent. It doesn't really work. Um, you know, it's right now they're, they're telling us data hygiene is our problem. That, that's, we got too many cookies and that's why we have too much digital exhaust. 
Well, I didn't put those cookies in my device, okay? The, the data hygiene is a marketing term and shift, intended to shift liability to consumers for the acts of data brokers. I reject that wholeheartedly. I didn't cause this problem. So the solution isn't me doing more stuff to protect myself. No, it is you know data minimization in the true sense, not in the lip service kind of privacy washing sense, like absolutely data minimization. And then validation. Like if you send a DSAR and you ask for a deletion request, you know, you need to have some kind of confidence that they honored that request. Hmm. That is really interesting. Uh, we had uh, Daniel Solav uh, previously on, on the show, and he also said that when you go into a store and purchase uh, a bottle of milk, you always trust that it's good. You don't do your own um, investigation into whether or not you can drink that milk. Well, he lives in America and we have an agency, the Food and Drug Administration, who has regulatory oversight. Milk is heavily regulated. And so, yeah, yeah I would have a lot of trust because there's regulations in place and, and there are steep fines and punishments if you fall out of line with those regulations. So, yeah, regulations with enforcement authority build trust in an in industry, including so, milk. <laughs> say in the, in the EU, we have GDPR. But uh, I think the trust is not yet there. So is that because uh, the lack of uh, enforcement? I think it's lack of validity. I mean, you ask the the CISOs and CPOs, you know, three years after the GDPR took effect, and they said less than thirty percent were in compliance. Why? Why? It's expensive. It takes a long time. They didn't want to do it. They wanted to fight it some more and see how this turned out or that turned out. Companies have a lot of reasons for you know, uh, uh, you know, just ignoring the risk, in my opinion, they're just ignoring the risk, uh, because eventually you're going to have to deal with it. Uh, but those are the own company responses to say who's in compliance with the GDPR, basically nobody. Um, and that number has gone up over time, because people are starting to see the cost of forgiveness is too high, if you are not doing at least something, uh, you have to demonstrate that you're doing at least something. I don't think that we've gotten to the point where people have faith that this company is GDPR compliant when they say that because privacy practitioners kind of chuckle a little bit when somebody says that. But if they truly were and you know could show that to the people that are trusting their brands, then I think they would you know start to develop a better relationship with them. You know, it's kind of like uh, we were abused for a while, and now businesses are saying we're we're not going to abuse you anymore. And it, it's hard to regain that trust just because how bad things got before we took action to regulate it. So what do you think about, uh, you You mentioned that there's a cost with being compliant. So my, maybe the products and services be, will be not for free anymore and uh, the consumers will have to pay. Will consumers be willing to pay? The value exchange before has been you're going to get nothing but surveillance. Um, and so, you know, data has, has shown from the research from the brave companies that are that are trying new things, you know, first party data sharing and collectives of data sharing and, and you know, consent based programs. It's showing that it is effective. And if there's the value exchange for the consumer, they're on board. So if you do want to collect all of my information, but you're also going to give me early access to sales, you're going to give me deep discounts, those sorts of things to, you know, pay me back for sharing my data and I feel like we got value on both sides. Yeah, that's gonna that's gonna continue to go. Um, there are different stores that you can go to. You think about the grocery store. When you go to the grocery store, if you don't use your little discount card, you're gonna pay a bunch more 
So you, we will see different forms of agreements, basically. Some will be like free on the surface, but you will pay with with other, like maybe a personal data. And then we will see a, a service that you actually pay with money and you don't. Services. Do you think people are going to start to subscribe? Let's look at Twitter. Did they pay for that blue check? Oh, hell no. Uh, I don't know that much about Twitter, unfortunately. Oh, oh, I'm so excited for you. Wow, you've missed a lot of the clown show. Um, so, yeah, Twitter is a platform. And no, I know what Twitter is, and I know that Elon Musk bought it. Yeah, right. Well, the public, yeah, the public space, that he loved free speech so much, he had to go and buy it. Um, yeah. yeah, well, then he, now he's having money troubles, and so he's trying to sell the blue check verification for $8 a month. He started with 20 and people laughed at him. So he said, how about $8 a month? And so, you know, if you want to go on and have your name verified so people know it's you or not, then you could do it for $8 a month. But they didn't verify who is buying those blue checks. <laughs> so oh, it's a okay. hot mess. Yeah, it's a hot mess. And the people who honestly used it, they elected not to pay for it because they've been using it for free and they think it's even worse of a service now. So they wouldn't possibly pay for it. And contrast, we could talk about Signal. Signal is a great encrypted messaging app. Yeah. People like using Signal and Signal started accepting donations because they said, this is very expensive for us to do. If you value this, please donate. And people do. So I think there's, because they get value from that service and that privacy is the cornerstone of that product. So, you know, I, I can see where people are gonna shift to start paying for things that they use. But first, they got to pay attention to what are you using and is it using you more than you're using it? So what about if you can't actually afford services that you have to pay for? Will we see like uh, A and B tip? We already can afford services that we need. Good information is behind paywalls right now. Oh, so you mean that uh, some people are ac getting access to better information than others? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And everybody's getting their own custom tailored information in their own silo now too, which is adding to the divisiveness. Um, but no, it, well, AI is a good example, generative AI. The schools have said, you know what, we need to teach the kids. We need to show them this cool GPT thing. They are not in the ghetto schools. They are not working with broke school districts for sure. So those kids also need to learn how to use generative AI for their jobs in the future. Mm. Um, it, exactly. So, I mean, information and access to information, it's always going to be a thing of privilege. So have you seen that when it came to AI already in the US? Yeah. Well, that they're introducing like uh, education about it on some schools, but not other. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, because schools vary by district and how much money is in the tax base around it and that sort of thing. You know, I mean, look at the beginning of COVID. All of the wealthy white countries got together and said, we're going to fix this COVID problem for the world. Let's make a smartphone app. And then finally, somebody said, excuse me, old white men, uh, only half of the world has smartphones. And they're like, oh, gee, that's not going to work. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. Only half the world does have smartphones. Yeah, that's I know, I know. It's not, it's not equal amongst the world. As much as we like to think we have a connected world, everybody is not connected. Everybody in China is connected and being watched everywhere all the time and tested in utero for their genetic makeup and all sorts of things. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's scary. You know, I, I advise clients on that all the time when it comes to building products. You don't build for what you need. You build for where you're going. That's very true. So so going back, because you're very active on LinkedIn, and that's why I also wanted you on the show, because you're always speaking the truth. I, 
your truth, obviously, but I think it's a fresh, some fresh air in the debate um, is always welcome. So you mentioned before that you are taking the consumer's perspective or in most cases, right? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm working more or less, I, I work with enterprises as well. I work with startups, um, you know, but the advocacy work that I am doing is definitely on behalf of consumers um, because I don't see anybody else out there doing it. So somebody's got to do it. And like you said, I am, I am on LinkedIn pretty often um, because, you know, that's the one social media platform that I decided I would put my work out on. Is honestly, what's the value of doing all of this work and research that I do if I don't talk about it? So I had to have an outlet to put it out there. Um, and so far, the reception has been pretty good. And, you know, the debates have been healthy. And I appreciate everybody else with the courage to put it out there. But I um, something that I constantly see or notes from other practitioners in the field who are prevented from uh, participating for one reason or another, a social media policy at work or they just don't feel like they're comfortable jumping into the debate. Um, but I get a lot of secret messages, so-called secret messages from people with support for what I'm doing because they also don't see anybody out there just speaking truth to power in the way that I do. So what do you, what do you say as the major threats for consumers right now in terms of privacy? Oh, right location now. data. Oh, location data. Hands down, location data. In my country, um, I have fewer rights now than when I was born. Um, so, and now my body uh, choices that I make for my own health care can render me a criminal. So, and the way that they'll evidence that is through data location and geospecific uh, location data and where you were and who you were with. So Texas now has a law that if you have a friend in Texas and you go and pick them up and drive them out of the state to get an abortion, you're an accomplice to a crime and they're a criminal. Likewise, if you want to send medication into the state to help someone out um, with health care choices uh, for abortion, you are also um, accessory to a crime. So states are, are fighting, the conservative states are fighting with each other to see who can be the most draconian towards women. South Carolina has just proposed a law in their legislature, hopefully it didn't go anywhere, and they stop with that, but they are proposing the death penalty for women who make these choices about their own bodies. Um, and so you're not thinking about what your phone is collecting, but it's listening to you. It takes pictures. It knows everywhere you went. It knows who you were with. And all of that data is available to law enforcement. You know, we used to have the Fourth Amendment right against search and seizure, but this is a giant loophole for law enforcement because if you shared that data with a third party, the law says you don't have an expectation of privacy in some of that data. So you can go to a data broker and buy the same data and then come charge you with a crime. So your location is the biggest threat to women specifically in America right now. They're trying to address that with some of the health data app changes and those sorts of things. But it's, it's a much bigger problem than that. Wow, I actually didn't know about that. The death penalty, man. We are in trouble when men are deciding to put women to death for making health choices about their own bodies. That's uh, very strange for me being like a Swede. Uh, first of all, we don't approve of the death penalty at all, or at least I don't. Uh, and for this type of, like, not even a crime, even though they consider it a crime, it's even more strange. Well, if my uterus was an AR-15, it would have a lot more rights. Yeah, um, um, I'm speechless. 
I'm sorry, but that's really how it is here in this country. It's it's a safety issue now. P privacy is a safety issue. Um, I was mad as hell before the Dobbs decision came down for the state of privacy in American um, business. I, I am I am terrified now, and it, it's beyond angry. It, it is a point of desperation. We have to get things done to protect people, and people know what's happening. Um, and we're seeing this already. Facebook turned over the records of a mom and daughter chatting about an abortion. They're charged with a crime, both of them. So isn't the solution is basically what you should consider a crime to begin with? There are a lot of problems. There are layers of problems on this issue. What I'm trying to work on is making this data toxic for data brokers to use and for them to make inferences on and for them to sell to other people to use without you having any knowledge or consent or rights mm. in all of that data being used against you. So I am trying to make that data toxic for them to use, at least in those industries, housing, education, lending, insurance, those with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, because it does have the private right of action. And how do you do that? Rulemaking. You know, I, I spent the weekend working on comments for the CFPB um, because they're accepting comments from the public about data brokers. Uh, and what should we do to regulate them? Here's something you need to do. Uh, you need to uh, declare that people that are working in these industries are subject to the Fair Credit Reporting Act. They no longer are entitled to the exception. They have to follow the same rules. Um, and as soon as they do, then people will immediately have those data rights, the right to know what they have, the right to correct it, the right to opt out of marketing, and the right to sue them if they don't. Now, the Fair Credit Reporting Act is not a perfect law but it is at least somewhere to start for those life critical areas. Um, <clears throat> this is all because Congress will not take action. They've got a pony show and every now and then they bring out the ADPPA and have another hearing when people get upset. Oh, let's have a hearing. And then nothing else happens. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier on that you were going to come back to the Congress. If you want to know, man, they all use this one tool called I-360 or some variation thereof, but that's the most popular tool. If you look at that tool, what it is selling to people is campaigns. So if you want to run for office, you go and you get this platform and it'll help you target your audience using consumer data and voting data and put it all together so that you can micro target and get campaign donations and get people registered to vote, show up at your events. And that way Congress can keep their jobs. So when they're holding a hearing saying big tech's using our data, you know, it's disgusting to me because whether they're aware of it or not, their campaigns are using consumer data to drive behavior the exact same way. And in the House, they run every two years. You got to fight for your job every two years. As soon as you finish a campaign, you're starting another. And, and uh, since I don't know what it is, is this a database they have themselves or is it a private entity? It's just another platform that goes and scrapes all kinds of publicly collected data and puts their inferences on it and cross device tracking so they can identify where your voters, your likely voters are. And then you can, you know, email them. And, you know, it got down to election day. We're getting text messages from candidates saying, I noticed that you haven't gone to vote today. You know how they got that? Geolocation data. Oh, okay. Is that not creepy? Because yeah. they could target you and know where you are within feet of where you're standing. But you could actually vote because you might not have brought your phone. 
Well, that too, but you know, then you have some other issues like you're waiting in line to get in, you need your license, you got all kinds yeah. of, you know, verifications you need to prove to get in to do the voting um and and then go. I moved out to the country during the COVID, so I'm in a deep deep red area now. So they were not excited to see me go vote anyway. So I that had to do something with driving how desperate the candidates were to light me up to go vote because my blue vote counted a lot more out here. So <laughs> it made sense to me, but I don't like it. Um, and that's just how you run political campaigns now. They have to have this data. So if they go and pass legislation that says you can't use this data this way, but we can, uh, people are immediately going to call bull on that. Now, if you think about the lobbying industry for big tech, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is a lobbying group, right? That one lobby shop at last count has 900 lobbyists. And there are lots of different lobbying organizations all over the place. Now, how many votes are there to influence on all of Capitol Hill? 535. That's it. So if you have hundreds or thousands of lobbyists in a new legislation, then each candidate with a vote or each legislator with a vote is suddenly going to get 50, 60 requests an hour that say, hello, friend, remember me? We're very excited about this bill and we want to have a meeting. Now, I don't know about you, but I can only have like maybe 10, 12 meetings a day. So, <laughs> yeah. so I mean, there's so much noise of coming at them about here's what you need to do about this, that, you know, the divisiveness is, is being capitalized upon. And I really think that they're having a hard time justifying how to change the data rules without impacting their own use of the data. And, and will it be different in the different states? Because we have seen state laws. Yes, and a lot of them exempted nonprofits. Um, and so the political action committees are nonprofits. And so they're free to you know do what they want. There are carve outs in all of the laws. Virginia is the best illustration of a lobbied exception. Virginia is also the location of the second headquarters for Amazon. So when the privacy bill came up in Virginia, everybody's excited. We're going to enshrine privacy rights in Virginia. Yay. At the very last minute, they get a phone call and said, we don't really like the language over here. So they changed a few words and then the law was passed. And guess what? Alexa is not covered. And how, how can they carve out a specific service? They changed the way voice recording, whatever the descriptor term that they would use that, that was in the legislation to capture Alexa and Siri and other devices. Hmm. They changed the language to say, no, nah, these aren't really covered over here. And people figured, you know, it's it's not that big of a compromise. Let's, yeah, let's go with it. So the devil's in the details. You know, I mean, a law, everybody says, regulate me, because they know they're going to have their hand in drafting the legislation and arguing for exceptions and giant safe harbors at the very end. And then as soon as the rules or laws are enacted, then they're going to start fighting them in court to chip down, you know, to make it easier for them. It's just, it's a constant cat and mouse game. So do you think we will see the same with AI? Because we've seen like a lot of cries for legislation now, even Everything. from the corporations. Yeah, I just talked to another reporter last week who's doing an article on the hype coming from everybody asking to be regulated. It's in their playbook. The first thing it's going to do is buy you a lot of time. They're capitalizing on the divisiveness of Congress. It will take forever to get something passed. In the meantime, you get to continue making a killing doing whatever you're doing. But you look like a good guy because you're calling for regulation. But as soon as somebody says, hey, we'd like to regulate you this way, you get a stiff arm. Oh, no, we might not be able to offer open AI in Europe because that would be just too drastic. You know, so, I mean, it's they're looking for regulation, but it's Goldilocks. It's got to be just the right kind of regulation. So it's regulation, light touch style, 
So you can say you got regulated, but you still get to make as much money the way that you want to, not interrupt your business model. So in terms of an AI regulation, will, do you think you will see like state regulations first, just as with uh, privacy? You know, I think it's pretty obnoxious that the United States has declared this is the home of AI, so we're going to regulate it. That's pretty obnoxious. I think that, you know, moving forward, an international, you know, coalition of users uh, of these tools need to talk about how do we want to do this before we onboard the whole of humanity. Um, you know, so conversations on, uh, you know, international scale would be optimal. But I, I think, you know, it, right now we're in a presidential election cycle. And so... Yeah. Yeah, the hype is off the charts. So last week, Representative Torres, um, you know, a Democrat from New York, uh, let it slip that he was going to introduce some AI legislation. And I read it and it I, I posted about it, too. I said, it smelled like a half-baked first draft, sprinkled with ambition. And it was just terrible legislation. Uh, but it, it, he would be the first to get something done. And that knee-jerk legislation is always the worst. So, you know, if they are going to try to get something done about AI, it's going to be cursory, such as, you're going to have to give a disclosure that this was generated by AI, but you can't have these people draft it because they're talking about putting a disclosure label on an API. How do you do that? Who's even going <laughs> to see that? So <laughs> I would prefer them not to legislate in this area just yet, uh, but I can see them all talking a big game about it because it sounds good when they're on the road trying to drum up votes. So have you had a chance to read the AI uh, regulation in the EU? Yes. Yes, I'm currently on a working group at Poor Humanity, and we're drafting the criteria for how to conduct an audit for bias in algorithmic and autonomous tools. We did it for the New York City um, bias audit law, and we've been asked to expand it to cover the EU's AI Act. Okay. So I'm currently in the middle of all of that good stuff right now. We just completed taxonomy. So, so far, uh, what do you think about it? You know, I feel like there are going to be a lot of compromises between the legitimate data needs of businesses and the rights of humans that are being used by these systems. I also feel like it's going in the right direction because most of these tools that are being used are terrible. And so independent audits are necessary. As soon as we can start setting best practices, then I think the industry is going to get cleaned up pretty quickly. So I am in favor of the EU passing, you know, whatever regulation they feel like they can implement and adequately enforce. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. But I'm in favor of that because it also is a guiding light for what the U.S. needs to look towards. If we get it right. Even if you get it wrong, you got something done and learned from what you got wrong. And I think there's value in that. Like, I don't want to do it first and screw it up. Like, you guys can do that. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome, man. <laughs> so speaking of like AI, uh, new AI act. And you mentioned data minimization like a while back during our discussion. And obviously, I mean, the amount of data is just breathtaking. It's impossible even to kind of conceptualize how much data is out there. Do you think it's possible to use data minimization and get the best value out of all that data? I do. I definitely do because we shouldn't be collecting or making inferences from all of these gobs of data um, because the, we do this to participate in the real-time bidding process and programmatic advertising so that they can behavioral target and, and pinpoint narrow down. We don't like the way that system was built. You know, we, we don't want to be tracked and surveilled and marketed to that way. Contextual marketing 
works. And you don't need to collect as much data if you're doing contextual marketing. You know, if I am looking at an article about snow skiing in Utah, it's fair to market me an ad to sell me snow boots, right? You don't need to know my sexual preference, my true hair color, who I'm sleeping with. You don't need to know any of that, right? Just like when you're applying for a job, your likes, your swipes, your kinks on Pornhub, the contents of your shopping cart, none of that has any bearing on whether you're qualified to do the job you applied. I really want data destruction technologies. I need to, I, anonymizing it doesn't mean you got rid of my data. That does not afford me the right to be forgotten. I want data destruction technologies so that you don't still have it sitting on a server somewhere, increasing the carbon footprint and destroying the planet for no reason. So I want data destruction technologies and I want their use mandated on a regular basis. We shouldn't have data retention problems in cybersecurity breaches because we should have the destruction technologies get rid of that data. Like we cannot keep growing the amount of data we collect this way. We're, I mean, Bezos and Musk are fighting about real estate in the skies above Earth for satellites. We and the data centers are running people out of the countrysides right now. We really cannot support the growth in data collection that we've been doing. So you mentioned the environmental impact of uh, data collection and, and the necessity of data minimization that we should also like do maybe a carbon footprint on data processing as well. Yes, absolutely. It goes under the ESG goals. Absolutely. Um, the, the over collection of data, the overuse of servers to hold data you don't need. You know, I mean, think about the world is awash in unstructured data. Think about the energy costs of that unstructured data sitting there doing nothing. You know, the point of collecting data is to do something with it, you know, and we're over collecting data that we don't need and impacting the environment. Like I said, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are fighting over real estate in the skies above Earth to put more satellites because of our overuse and over collection of data. So there's a big environmental impact to our data use. We cannot continue growing this way with our use of data. We have to do something about it. It's harming humans, it's harming the environments. You know, now is the time for us to do things differently. We never asked for this system to be built this way. They just decided they can sell us stuff this way. So who's who are they? The people that established, you know, the beginning of the um the data broker industry. You know, programmatic advertising I think started in 2006. And it just got, you know, more and more and more because they said the more data we can get, the better we can get at targeting people. And so they just kept putting so many resources into surveillance and targeted advertising that nobody put any research into, should we? So they, they built a fabulous machine for their purposes, um, but we're aggravated by the ads and we still feel like with all the information they have about us, they're failing to target us with things we're interested in, right? So it's, it's not working for the consumers. It's not really working for the businesses, small businesses, especially their ad spend. And how do you validate that? Because there's so much fraud. Um, and does it turn into dollars for your business? Because it's definitely turning into dollars for the ad tech companies, right? Yeah. So why do you think that it more or less happened unnoticed by the public? That was the point. You know, I mean, the big thing at Google was People are going to be upset if you find out about this. I mean, Alistair McTaggart, you know, that's where he, you know, he was the one who authored along with some other people like Tom Kemp, some other guys put together the CCPA ballot initiative because he was talking to somebody who worked in one of these big tech companies and they said, Shh, um, you know, you don't need to worry about what data you're, we're collecting because you would, you would be upset about it if you found out. 
He said, no, now I really want to know. So he found out and that's when he said, you know what, this is none of their business. And he started the ballot initiative in California. Um, and it, it was part of the corporate culture. Keep this quiet because people will get upset about this. And they did. So I'm just thinking because we had like in the public story, we had uh, Edward Snowden and uh, a couple of other people like being whistleblowers. Mm-hmm. Why didn't we get any whistleblowers from the private industry, or did we? You know, and we we got we got a few. Part of it were the agencies themselves that you blow the whistle at. I mean, did they have data scientists, ML engineers, technologists, all the people that you need to understand information that's coming to you? No, they didn't. So now they do, which is great. Um, but you know, it, it took a while. I always say the missing link in privacy progress, like the, the link in the chain, the missing link were lawyers and, law, and legislators. They were the last to find out how does privacy work? How does it apply? What do we need to do about it? Because most everybody else in the industry knew what was going on and they're yelling, you know, I myself yelling at the top of the mountain, this is how this works and we need to fix it. Um, but it took a while, especially the plaintiff's bar. Um, the lawyers on the plaintiff's bar who actually go in on the ground level and fight these battles, you know, to, to move the needle towards progress. They didn't understand how these cases work because nobody had a background in technology. There were lawyers and they also couldn't find out how do I monetize this? Cause they don't work for free either. Um, but once that got lined up, you know, everybody's in business now. Do you think that lawyers are good enough today on this technology side or do we still have like a journey to to do? Oh, we have a long way to go. We have a long, long way to go. I work with lawyers all the time to try to bring their base level of knowledge up to find out here's what you need to know and here's who you need to know in terms of other people because you can't know everything. So he, here's where you need to focus on things you need to know so you understand the audit reports that are you know delivered to you and you know how to advise a client, how to remediate it to prevent future harm and clean things up. And I, you know, I'm still one of the few lawyers that I know out there doing it on this side, but there are a lot more lawyers getting into this field now, and it's not for good reason. It is not. The privacy conference in April, there were twice as many people there this year than last year. It's because the enterprise litigation attorneys showed up because they want to know, how do I defend my client's use of AI without changing anything? And also, what is AI? And so they were at the conference to figure these sorts of things out, mm. <laughs> right? So there are a bunch more lawyers getting involved in this. And it, it, the knowledge is permeating. They're starting to understand that this is important, but it's still going to take a little while um, to, to get out into the field. So, so is it lawyers that should learn technology, but also engineers should learn a little about ethics and law, I guess? Yeah, back when I was doing the consumer rights, you know, I had um, a third party vendor and we worked on a lot of technology issues. And so, uh, you know, we had an overall plan for the system that we were building, the flags we wanted to put in and how we wanted it to work, those sorts of things. But I understood technology because they ran into some issues. You know, I would say, here's what I want. And, you know, they're like, we can't do that. So it took a while to learn how does that work on your side? And, you know, they need to learn why do I want what I want, you know, because I had to meet a regulation or a timeline or something. So by talking about what we needed and then finding areas of compromise and then built it from there. But that took a lot 
of work on my part to understand how does technology work so that it can build this thing. They don't teach us that in law school for sure. So now we have a chance to our listeners, a lot being lawyers, to be honest. Can you give us some tips? What should we learn and where should we start? Oh, lawyers need to start with failure. Failure is required in technology and lawyers don't have that mindset. They get one bite of the apple. It's got to be right. And you've got to, you know, when you're working in certain areas of technology, you got to let that go because you're not going to be able to learn. Technology requires failure and every failure is another opportunity to improve the next iteration, right? So that's a mindset change. Also, they they need to look at things a little bit differently in terms of who is at the other end of this transaction. Because if you're doing, you know, data processing agreement between this company and that company and the other company, you know, and you've got a lot of moving parts and you get it worked out on paper, the contract's great, but how are you treating the customers, the people whose data you just made a big agreement about? So, you know, at this point, the consumers are starting to get a little bit of, you know, a little bit more credibility, a little bit more importance. They're not necessarily a priority yet, especially in dealing with U.S. data. But, you know, lawyers are starting to understand what's the consumer experience like as they go through the changes that I just made here. Did I give a preference center for their data sharing options or did I just put up a cookie banner and not include the reject all button because I don't want them to do that, you know, right? So it, it's it's going to take a little bit longer for, for lawyers to get into the groove between where does technology and law meet? Also, you know, where does the role of the consumer play here? And I would rather them do this because brand reputation, brand value and messaging, those are more important to businesses um, than paying overhead for regulatory compliance purposes. So if you're just trying to get a business to change based on fear and say, you have to comply with these regulations or X, Y, and Z bad stuff will happen. You're not going to get as good a buy-in as if you put more thought into it and say, you know what, we can do the compliance, but also we can do this to monetize the data after it's within the privacy ecosystem and maybe create a new revenue stream you didn't have before to offset some of the cost of doing the compliance work and add a business component to it so that you entice more buy-in and do the right thing for the consumers in the end. I mean, that's not something that lawyers usually do. And that's something that I find clients can appreciate when I do bring them those sorts of options. So there's a better way to sell this kind of work to your businesses than fear. So, so do you think that, at least when I studied in law school, we only learned about law, basically, <laughs> in law school. We didn't learn how to actually use legal um, obligations in the way you just described from a product or business perspective should we change how this uh, law schools are learning law absolutely oh yes there's so much stuff we need to teach students so that they can have practical skills when they get out but in america it's even worse um you know there's something else that i learned from working with the canadian lawyers um at henry and wolf they, it's a great crew of people but it includes new articled students and so that apprenticeship program that they have after law school for a year i think is is hugely valuable i think the american system would value you know would see a lot of progress and fast if we had the our law school students after the bar exam then do an apprenticeship for a year so that they can learn how to do things instead of fight to get a job and then you know try to learn some things but you're pretty much just part of the money-making machine so you never get a chance to work on anything real um there are a lot of things that we could do differently on this but i think 
all of this starts with teaching businesses, you know, where the lines are for acceptable use of data and what's not acceptable because they've been spoiled for a long time on, you know, a gluttonous amount of data for whatever purpose they want. And they're comfortable with that. That's going to be hard to change. So, you know, the new students coming in, they're already going to be met with headwinds and they may not have the base level of knowledge that they need to work in this area. So I would recommend them work with other groups that are out there, other privacy groups that are networking groups so that they can find a mentor at least and have someone mentor them through some of the uh, more difficult areas as they learn how to do this practice. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that was a really great uh, finishing comments, but I must ask one final question. And that is obviously about the EU-US transfer mechanism. And also maybe in the light of the upcoming election, I think it's in October next year, right? Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. Honestly, as soon as it came out, I thought, oh, this is hilarious. You're going to set up a court for redress? And I can't wait for the Department of Justice to tell me how that little court's going to work. So the Department of Justice drops their little information sheet. And yeah, I thought that was hilarious too. You kidding me right now? Like, I'm going to set up a court to enforce your rights, rights I don't even have. Um, and by the way, you're not going to get any redress from it. It looks like an expensive exercise in theater. Um, and so, it, honestly, you guys should not give us adequacy, period. There's so <laughs> many things wrong with what we do. We don't deserve adequacy. Don't do that. Shame on you if you do. Um, but no, the EO... I don't is, think I have a saying in that. <laughs> right? Well, tell all your friends. We don't deserve adequacy. If I'm the only American that will admit that, we don't deserve adequacy. Um, but the EO is another show pony. And uh, also executive orders are worth the paper they're written on during the administration. The next administration can rip that to shreds as soon as they are sworn in. So do not base your business model for the next five years on an EO. That's just a bad idea. Um, but also functionally, it is not going to accomplish your goals either. You know, do you feel like you had a, a right and adequate remedy from the, what the EO was describing? No, if you ask me, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I I read the last meta decision, of course, mm -hmm. and uh, the conclusions that you can't actually even add supplementary measures in order to prevent uh, some agencies and authorities to access data in the U.S. Yeah, my government is going to surveil. And if my government doesn't do the surveillance that it does and something bad happens in the world, people are immediately quick to go to the American intelligence community and say, what happens? Why didn't you know about this? Why didn't you do something about this? Exactly. So what are the legitimate surveillance needs of my government in terms of human protection all over the world um, versus what are our expectations of what they're going to do with that data? People didn't even know that they were doing this until Snowden. So, you know, we surveil people more now than when Snowden came out with his revelations, y'all. So you knew about it and we started surveilling even more. So but yeah, the Cloud Act is a huge problem. We can reach anything, anywhere, anytime because... That's what America says they do. I mean, you guys can try saying no. We'll see how that shakes out. Um, but that's why Americans just come in and steamroll because they know they're not really going to get pushback. It's not okay, but that's that's what they're doing. Um, and it's all in the effort of surveillance for national security. Look how much money we spend on war, all sides. Yeah, absolutely. But do you it's think that... Uh, I mean, you, you're going to run into a presidential election campaign. I think normally it starts like one year ahead. So that will actually be in October. Is it? No, we're starting now. We're in it now. Okay. You're in candidates... it now already. Well, no, we're definitely in it now. One of the candidates um, may have an ankle bracelet on while he's on the campaign trail. So we're definitely in interesting times right now. 
Okay. I thought you were only in the candidate phase right now. Who will be like the presidential candidate for each party and vice president? Well, yeah, that that doesn't no the the campaigning start they've announced they're collecting donations they're doing oh. speeches they're raising okay. votes like they're doing everything you know uh, except deciding who is going on the ticket because first they have to do the clown show of who wants to be on the ticket and yeah. then it gets you know narrowed down um and you know the forces that be will decide who's on the ticket and then they go to the conventions after the conventions they have the last run up to the election then the election is supposed to be over. Um, unless some people get upset and they decide to invade your capital and trash it. So that was also um, a, a one-off kind of situation. But the election cycle is in full right now. And how much do you think the outcome will affect EU-US data transfer? Not at all, if Biden wins. And if the Republicans wins, Trump I or whoever will be running for president? I got a little PTSD on that, honestly. I can't even consider those sorts of options right now. Okay. <laughs> um, I do. I do. It was a rough four years. I mean, the 2020 election, after it was over and before they called it, I spent a couple of days hiding under the bed, waiting until it was safe to come back out. I couldn't believe what had happened to my country in just four short years of that kind of awful leadership, so-called leadership. Um, so I can't consider what's going to happen you know, if the Republicans come in. What I can tell you is that regardless of political party in the United States, everybody agrees that they don't like surveillance by big tech. That is a bipartisan issue. Everybody agrees something needs to be done. They may have their own individual reasons. Conservatives feel like they're being discriminated against because of their political views. And that may be true, right? That may be true. We're not really sure. Um, But everybody else is uh, afraid of other kinds of issues, you know, geolocation data and safety, Uh, for privacy, for women's health care. Everybody has their own reasons for why they think privacy is important and we need to do something now. The good news is that it's on both sides of the political aisle. Everybody agrees that we need to take action on this. And so that's why I think that we have an opportunity to get movement, whether it be from the regulators or if Congress tries to do something. Um, But I think Congress would probably not be in the best position to do something about this. Likewise, the Supreme Court not in a good position to do something about this. It was wise of them to not rule and throw out Section 230, even though everybody in the world was convinced they were going to throw it out. They punted it back to Congress because it's Congress's job to draw this narrowly tailored line for who can do what, and it's not for the Supreme Court to do. That would have been chaos. So I think we're getting somewhere in terms of, of, of progress, and I'm glad to see the collective, like consumers as a whole, everybody's on the same side of this issue. That's encouraging. I think that's an awesome ending to our discussion. A positive note. Um, I'm going to stop the recording. <laughs> <laughs>